You are listening to Radio Albion. This is Matthew Raphael Johnson, and I'm bringing you another edition of the Orthodox Nationalist. This is being recorded on the 4th of February, 2024. I um, encourage listeners to subscribe to my Patreon page. I just uploaded a, a lengthy article, as I mentioned before, on... Israeli settlement policy, which is more relevant now than it had been in the past. Um, and much of what I do here ends up getting posted there in, in more detail. Many of you have noticed last three weeks that I've been involved. I, I talked about Rousseau. I talked about Stoicism, and I talked about Hegel, seemingly far from the core of this lecture series, which is both orthodoxy and nationalism, and the combination of the two. So I'm going to do that today, and it shouldn't surprise you that I use in this regard the work of Ivan Ilyin, the great Russian royalist and nationalist uh, political writer in exile. But more specifically this time, I'm dealing only with a handful of essays. Essays that appeared in probably the best collection of his political work, the two-volume compendium called Our Tasks, Essays 1948-1954. So everything in there has been written in that, really the peak of his creative power. This was published by the Russian Military Union, publishing house in 1956, which was at the time located in Paris. The specific topic, though, is he, had a, he has a series of essays in there on the causes of the fall of the Russian royal state in 1918. There are four or five essays total. I'm almost certain they've never been, they've never seen the light of day in, in English, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And in fact, there's quite a bit in this that I don't necessarily agree with. I understand Eileen, many of my listeners do, but I was a little surprised in a few areas of, of, uh, of a few things that he, that he said. Before I begin, I want to very briefly mention the two types of Russian monarchists. These are very general types. The first is what developed in the latter part of the 19th century, and that is the Petrine, um, uh, more formal Petrograd-based movement. They dislike Ivan the Terrible, they vehemently despise the old believers, and they don't 
see the Moscow period as positive whatsoever. And of course, the second group to which I belong is a far more romantic and ethno-nationalist group connected to the Moscow state, highly sympathetic to the old believers and having more in common with the Slavophiles uh, than with um, Nicholas I, who took Peter the Great as his as his model. Was a far greater man than than Peter, but and um, Elin seems to fall into the former category. Of course, these are ideal types only. One is a a nationalist, firmly orthodox and traditionalist agrarian monarchy. The other is a multinational empire. Um, it's it certainly there is some truth to be found in both. But this is the reason Ivan Elin seems to be. I mean, he loves Peter the Great, and he says so in these eth- essays. Um, Elin is is correct as far as as far as he goes, but he overstates his case. Either way, it's extremely interesting, and I, I don't want to necessarily say this was the emigre political view. Um at the beginning of the so-called Cold War, but it seems to be that way. So, he begins with the very dire conception that in 1918, the millennium, the stronghold of orthodoxy, was gone. The state fell apart. The sacred foundation of national existence was completely uprooted. And according to Elin, those close to the monarchy did not fight for it. The throne collapsed. The banner was not unfurled. Few stood up for it publicly. Now, on this show, I've gone into great detail about people like General Dietrichs and the royalist armies that, that developed but it was a bit late by that point. It was during the Civil War. The monarchy was long gone by that point. Now, of course, he says that there were many honest, brave men. But he also suggests that it was their will that was paralyzed. They were scattered. They were powerless. They were intensely fragmented. And didn't have the most moral leadership. Now, given the period in which he writes, he states that there has yet to be an attempt to understand this tragic collapse, the political mistakes that led to this circumstance. Anglo-American history, up until fairly recently, has been awful in this regard, although I have to admit the old liberal cadet version of things is falling apart. It, it collapsed in on itself. But the collapse of the monarchy, the February Revolution, and of course it's grinding into the dirt in October, Elin says, as do I, that it was the collapse of Russia. He calls it a semi-intelligentsia. The Russian Republic was very briefly established. But just as you didn't have those fighting for the crown, which is only partly true, 
in addition, you didn't have a whole lot of people fighting for something abstract like the Constituent Assembly. Technically, the white armies were fighting for the provisional government. In reality, the provisional government had didn't have a leg to stand on. Elin says that it's Pushkin that established the royal ideology. Now, if you get my book on Russian literature, um, there's some truth to that, and I have an essay on that on that topic. But he makes the point that the move from February to October is very easy to foresee. Unfortunately, there weren't a whole lot of people in Russia at the time that were able to foresee this. The Constituent Assembly was itself a product of this spiritual poverty, disgrace, and the decay of civic life. Therefore, Bolshevism was inevitable. Both Dostoevsky and Pushkin saw this as something that is coming, as did the symbolist movement. But whether or not it created a, 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 an active and coherent political movement is another matter. But Ilin says something that should sound familiar to you. I'm going to do some quoting here, um, because honestly I'm talking about his analysis. He says, In Russia, the two options are either autocracy or chaos. Russia is incapable of a republican system. The very existence of Russia requires autocracy. A religiously and nationally strengthened autocracy of honor, loyalty, and service. That is, the monarchy. That, or the godless autocracy. One that is dishonest, anti-national, and international. That is, a tyranny. Now that may sound familiar to you. I've made the choice, not just for Russia, but everywhere in the world, between some variant of royalism, whether military or, or otherwise, um, on the one side, or the rule of private interest on the other. It's almost impossible to split the difference. But Elin asked the simple question, how was it, throughout the highly literate, economically, you know, explosive 19th century, how was it that among bureaucrats, the court, the intelligentsia, the senate, many other places, no one saw that the collapse of the crown would be the collapse of Russia. Now, we've dealt with a handful of people here that knew exactly that. But then he continues, actually, this is in a very different essay from 1949 on, on democracy and evil. There are two different understandings of the state and politics, the mechanical and the organic. Mechanical defends the human instinctive individual and its private interests. It measures life quantitatively and formally. The organic comes from the human spirit and goes back to national unity and its common interests. It is of high quality and speaks spiritual roots and solutions. Now, of course, Peter the Great was the exact opposite of the organic point of view and introduced a lot of this to, to Russia. Though I've always said that he was the the completion of the Nikonian movement. The problem was, by 1918, almost every single faction, actually in his mind every single faction, uh, within Russian politics had this mechanical, not the organic, focus. 
He seems to suggest that the emperor did not foresee what would happen if the revolutionaries took over. Now, I need to say something here. Elin is of the opinion that Tsar Nicholas actually abdicated the throne. It's not true. But the documents that prove that, and that show that, he had no access to. So, when I quote him saying that, understand, that's the information he had to go with at the time. But he says, had, had Nicholas understood this, he would never have abdicated, or at the very least, he would have ensured some legitimate succession to the throne. And certainly would not have permitted under any circumstances the provisional government to take over. But the Tsar was quite well aware of what was in store for Russia. No foresight existed. The principles that needed to be defended were only those of what he calls a heroic minority, and it was from them that the nucleus of the White Army was created. Now, in his work on general politics, Ilin's point of view is that it's only the heroic minority that does anything, either one side, either for good or for evil. However, given the extreme nature of the circumstance, World War I, Russia as a state form facing extinction, it shouldn't have been that. It should have been a majority, especially of the Russian-speaking population, that came forward to defend it. Then he says that by 1918, Russia lacked a coherent royalist theory of justice. To the extent that it existed, it was obscured by this pseudo-intellectual intelligentsia. So many in the bureaucracy and even the army, through these liberal democratic illusions, spread, as he would say, by a secret minority in existence since the French Revolution. The new martyrs were the resistance that came a little bit late. But the church at this at its highest level, and if you've read my book on the on the topic, fully supported the February Revolution. But men like John of Kronstadt knew that not just in the state, but for every man. The battle between royalism and anarchy is constantly being waged. And Plato's insight that what affects the soul is also, by the very structure of things, uh, it affects the state as well. The division of the soul is mirrored by the division of roles in, in, the, uh, in government. Elin always argued and maintained this consistently that every political system has its vital foundations that are sometimes even subconsciously present in the overwhelming majority of the population. Things like the sense of justice, what is fair and what is not. But when these foundations begin to rot, the political system begins to degenerate. And in fact, it degenerates into its opposite, a, a sinister caricature, as he would say. So as these things begin to rot away, and really when you don't have these foundations at all, at least not coherently laid out, then of course the population is incapable of such a political system. Elin wants to say that this is what occurred roughly from the 1860s to the February Revolution.
Now, another aspect of the argument is Russian history itself. He states that there was always a fine line between banditry on the one hand and Cossack rebellion on the other. I've dealt with that at, at great length. That civilization means settled agriculture, settled position, property. And when the Cossacks were settled, they became nationalized and defended the Russian borders. That eventually the anarchistic spirit will accept law and create the settled and royal state. So Elin says this, the Russian people thought and felt that order comes from the Tsar. Only the Tsar's government can save and build Russia. Woe to that kingdom which is owned by many, or better a formidable king than seven boyars. But anarchy, unleashing, passion, the encroachment, pogrom, licentiousness create a profitable opportunity. Hence these rebellions with robbers or self-proclaimed leaders. From time to time, a nationwide revolt arose. And he mentions the Troubles, Razin, Pugachev, even the Bolsheviks, which was not exactly a revolt. But he quotes Razin, who says, I'm going to destroy all rank and authority and make sure everyone is equal to everyone. Which, by the way, I don't think he said. Pugachev, the same way. And of course, in rhetoric, rhetorically speaking, Lenin. But that's always just under the surface in, in Russian life. Now, it's very easy to argue that the First World War is a ginormous cause. It damaged basic morality, let alone the, the national sense of justice. And this is exactly how the left functions. It takes those periods and then attempts through its own organization to exploit that and take over. That the, the peasantry even the working class, who tended to be royalist at their core, that uh, began to fall apart. So, since it's either royalism or anarchy, it was the latter that came forward. Something that Elian does that I've never done is he goes through the work of some Russian folklorists and showing just how deep the royalist consciousness was. And he cites a few very well-known at the time, anyway, peasant proverbs and peasant sayings, things that were just kind of understood. And he, he lists a whole bunch of them. Um, like God is in heaven, so is a king on earth. Without a king, the land is a widow. Without a czar, the people are orphans. By God and the czar, Russia remains strong. The heart of the king is in the hand of God. The sovereign answers to God alone. The king is good, but his servants are evil. Royal favors are filtered through the boyar shiv. Oppression does not come from the monarchy, only from his favorites. Where the czar is, there is the truth. And he lists a whole bunch of these um, proverbs, very well known in the countryside, and kind of was passed down uh, over the generations. Elin will say that these feelings faded. And they certainly were never translated into a program that people could 
relate to. Criminality and treason took the place of loyalty and responsibility. That this was a temptation of the common Russian population. Ultimately, all politics comes down to the rule of the few. Now, of course, Ilin was an aristocrat. He believed in aristocracy. He was a royalist, of course. But that doesn't mean civic life needs to, to not exist. Only the few can truly understand civic life. But it's also very easy for oligarchs, the mirror image of aristocrats, to disguise themselves. He also mentioned the pseudo-intellectualism of the academy. That liberalism comes in through these uh, semi-intellectual theories that get digested in various ways, and even that began to rot out the Russian sense of right. Sarcastically, he's talking about the intelligentsia coming through the reign of, of empresses like Catherine II, Peter himself, really, bringing in foreign professors, including the encyclopedias, Voltaire, the ideology of Rousseau. The practical school, of course, was the French Revolution. And in Russia, it found itself manifesting as a, with the murder of Emperor Paul, and then later in among the Decembrists. He also mentions something I've talked about, I'm almost alone in this respect, the noble coups, really the revolution, 1730, 1740, 1741, 1742, where a German Masonic cult under people like, um, I've talked about before, Johann Byron, took over and absolutely raped the country. Rousseau, Voltaire, Robespierre, Danton, had a huge influence on Russian intellectuals, and in fact, the French language in the time of Catherine II had an enormous influence on Russia. Somehow, people began to believe, intellectuals began to believe that a republic was the same thing as a free state, and hence superior to monarchy. So buzzwords like freedom, equality, or, or vote counting introduced the mechanical approach to politics to, to Russia. In his other works, he talks about the state with the state of nature, social contract, uh, individualist ideologies, which is what liberalism is. The state then has to be conceived as a mechanical balance of purely private desire. And that's what the state is. It's a compromise of private desire. Hence, it has to institutionalize hypocrisy. You know, on the one hand, liberalism says that men are good-hearted, they're reasonable, they deserve respect just for being human, which they never define. And yet, when the state is nothing more than a collection and a balance among private interests, which of course it never is, that's on, that's on paper, the only thing that really results is mutual uh, distrust and competing intrigues. In intrigues. To a great extent, the American Constitution is based on precisely that. So they, they try to maintain both of those at the same time. Is it mutual distrust, or are we all good-hearted and reasonable? Or at least, our origins show us to be that way. The social contract did have a substantial um, presence in Russia, and even Thomas Hobbes had a huge influence over those defending Prokopovich and others, the reign of, of Peter the Great, 
which Elian doesn't seem to, to want to talk about. The French encyclopedias, the revolutionaries, and then they were followed by anarchists and liberals, so-called formal democracy. They believed in intellectual equality. And over time, these salon beret-wearing fools took it for granted. This is just a, a, a true statement. We, we all know that republicanism is, is better. Formalism, abstract freedom. This ideology, though, was strongly attacked by Pushkin. One of my favorites is the Bronze Horseman, um, which I have in, in my book on Russian literature, which is an attack on Peter the Great and actually St. Petersburg in general. Then Dostoevsky in prison, the House of the Dead, abandoned republicanism and socialism and laid out a variation of royalism and diary of a writer. And the temptations of atheism and materialism in the possessed or, or demons. You did have, now he says, during and after the reign of Alexander II, so-called liberator, although Nicholas I, you know, um, laid out so many of the of this, and it was the uh, St. Um, Philaret in Moscow that actually wrote it. But a intelligentsia, almost a counter intelligentsia, came into existence during the reign of Alexander II. But it was precisely the reforms of Alexander that was the problem. This never became coherent because it embittered revolutionaries and Republican Republicans. This is where the terror campaign of the so-called People's Will came from. Bakunin and Necheyev, its eventual products. They couldn't see, and they didn't want anyone else to see, the crown as this popular force. In other words, the crown was doing what these revolutionaries were just claiming to be able to do. It isn't like they thought the reforms were insufficient. That was never the issue whatsoever. Whenever these people took power, no, nothing like this was ever done. But it was growing in popularity amongst the population. Therefore, they had to drive a wedge of mistrust, fear, compromise between the czar and the bureaucracy and the czar and the population because the reform weakened their chances at, at revolution. No, these kind of things could only happen because of us, not because of the monarchy. This very cognitive dissonance drove them crazy. None of these groups ever cared about the public good. Many of them were too sociopathic to even care about their own good half the time. The Slavophile um, westernizing schism occurred roughly at this same time. And this was a continuum more than two ideal types. But it really was people like Timofey Gronowski, Ivan Turgenev, and Harrison where the this ideological and spiritual divide began. Now, I think he's wrong there, too. I think it's far deeper than that. But he's right when he says the monarchy was the main obstacle to Russian liberalism and the people's will. They didn't care about a constituent assembly unless they controlled it. He also then says that there was a group of intellectuals that revolved around Stolypin and his agrarian reform. So many of these people saw the enlightened absolutism as, as the best form of government, but only as a way to transition into something else. 
So many of them eventually isolated or tried to isolate the czar. He goes so far as to say that republicanism and its assumptions embraced not just the left, but also a large part of the right in the early 20th century. Those, the the Constitutional Democratic Party, the entire intelligentsia, the semi-intelligentsia, people in between, all considered monarchy as a obsolete form of government. That was a, a point of dogma. You have the same thing in, in the U.S. You had a flood of the so-called humorous magazines, 1905-1906. Of course, there was no censorship. Um, they had you know, poems and pictures and caricatures praising, however, indirectly regicide and indirectly calling for the elite so all these, you know, the, the, these journals were in great demand. They were a part of Russian urban life in the early 20th century. And the one thing they all had in common was that there is one enemy, and that is monarchy. Elin talks about people like Fyodor uh, Kokoshin, who founded that very same Constitutional Democratic Party, and he actually had a portfolio in the provisional government. Simply assumed that liberal democracy is the best form of government, and its its establishment will, according to him, immediately improve us. He was eventually imprisoned by, by Lenin, where he died of tuberculosis. Alexander Ogutkov, who praised the genocidal young Turks in Turkey, overthrowing the, the sultan, and called on the, the exact same thing to happen in Russia. This was a man, by the way, who spread the rumors about the empress and Rasputin, showing that he had no principles whatsoever. After the February Revolution, he was appointed Secretary of War, and he authored Order Number 1 that introduced equality into the military and almost destroyed it. Justice has nothing to do with any of this. It's destruction and hatred. But ultimately, under the strain of World War I and this propaganda, the monarchy tottered. It fell very unexpectedly, very quickly, tragically, almost helplessly. And he says it's because there was no real royalist ideology that people could appeal to. Or if there were, there were too many of them. That at the decisive moment, royalists were all over the place. They, they were not near the center of power. They were divided. They were scattered. They were powerless. And in the last year or so, of the reign of Nicholas, he was well aware of this. He knew that this something was approaching. He could feel the isolation and betrayal. And if there were a war over the crown, he may well lose it. The opposition of the Duma, 1905, the Weiborg Manifesto, which is a disgraceful call for violence against the monarchy, the murder of Stolipin, right in the presence of of the czar. These things all brutalized the population. This had nothing to do with the rebirth of freedom. But he also says that there was no resistance to these threats. There was no royalist mobilization of the public. No sincere, no organized impulse to defend the monarchy. After the alleged abdication of Nicholas, Grand Duke Mikhail Alexandrovich took over. He didn't fully understand, according to Ilin, the, the cause of, of the, these events. He appealed to the will of the people stupidly, 
rationalizing the February Revolution. I want to quote Elian again on this respect. In reality, the situation was such that both the sovereign and the Grand Duke renounced not just the right to the throne, but their religiously sanctified, monarchical, and dynastic duty to guard the throne, rule with authority, save their people in an hour of the greatest danger, and return them to the path of loyalty, responsibility, and obedience. It is difficult for us now to understand that the last two sovereigns, Nicholas II and Mikhail II, none of their entourage, military or civilian, told them in the form of a loyal synod or council, um, by virtue of the Russian fundamental laws, to which they all swore allegiance, constitutes the most basic and strict system of the royal estate, there is found no right to abdicate the throne, especially in an hour of great danger. Now, again, I think at least Nicholas was well aware of, of all of this. Here in a minute we'll get into the, the reasons why there was no abdication of Tsar Nicholas. And it's easy to say that, that the betrayal, the treason, the fatigue, the chaos, the confusion, especially during a massive, unprecedented war, is what causes all of this. But these explanations don't go deep enough. He says that in the depths of these events, behind all of this, there was an, an, a fundamental absence of a strong and faithful royalist sense of justice, political theory. And it wasn't to be found in the highest circles of the army or the, or the bureaucracy. The left had dominated the media. They were skilled in propaganda. They had all the one-liners and the slogans. The crown, however, didn't, couldn't or didn't, defend itself ideologically in any kind of a unified way that people could relate to. The Civil War, of course, showed how many great men Russia was able to produce but you also had generals and bureaucrats telling these men to abdicate. And the moment they did that, they were not acting as royalists or even servants of the state, but only as liberal republicans. Now, Elin assumes that Nicholas actually signed his own abdication. He did not. But at least as far as the public was concerned, on hearing that he had renounced his throne, what they heard was that he had renounced all of this for himself and for his heir. To be a member of this dynasty means to have not only a subjective right to the throne, that is, in, 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 in legality, but a sacred duty to save and lead, one, lead one's people. And it's for this purpose, to lead them to a sense of responsibility, rank, and obedience. Not out of oppression, but out of understanding. To be Part of this dynasty, the Romanov dynasty, is a calling to power and an obligation to service. One of the axioms of legality in general is that unilateral renunciation of public legal obligations is impossible. It is this axiom that's recognized in the Russian fundamental laws of the time, especially in the most difficult hours of, of national life, the monarch guards his power and seeks national salvation with it. Now, I wanted to quote him at length on this. Yes, we know that Nicholas did not abdicate the throne, although there were plenty of people telling him to do just that. He was overthrown. But at the time, it didn't matter. 
Ilin claims that it's the law, it's Russian legality that justifies um, the Russian monarchy. And of course, I disagree with that. The law is a product, and by this time, it was a product of, of a very different mentality. Now, most of you know that I wrote in 2018 um, a book called A Circle of Betrayal, Cowardice, and Deceit on the 100th anniversary of the ritual murder of the Russian royal family in 1918. Now, I have to do a, a second edition of that. There's some errors in there that I've discovered. But I argued, of course, this abdication, abdication never occurred. Partially because, as Elin mentioned, it's it's forbidden. Nicholas, however, did have a plan where Mikhail would take the reins of state while he took the place of a patriarch. He would be a spiritual authority, a spiritual rather than a political figure. He wanted to build Russia into a sacral theocracy with two executives, like you had at the time of Philaret and um, around the time of the Troubles an emperor for the political elements, and a spiritual patriarch for the church. There's a professor at Kostroma State University some years ago that, that uncovered a lot of documents in this respect. Even people like Pavel Milukov, who was ahead of the Duma, admitted in his memoirs that Russia was doing too well for a revolution. Russia was winning World War I. So he wasn't going to abdicate. Forcing a fake one, however, was absolutely essential. Nicholas's point of view, once the war was over, he would have tremendous moral authority, and the revolution would fail. Therefore, if you're a revolutionary, you have to get rid of Nicholas very quickly. Many of his generals were traitors, many of them exaggerating the violence throughout the country and even telling him that the only way to save it is to resign. General um, Alexiev, as I've said before, was the chief culprit here. He sought the military dictatorship for himself. That's where the title of the book comes from. In his diary, Nicholas said he calls this a circle of betrayal, cowardice, and deceit. German leaflets were flooding the country, especially uh, in army positions, and they made stuff up. They said the Tsar promised free land, yet I had to go home and claim it. Many of them were saying that the Tsar had already abdicated and that the war was over. We all know the elites tilted to the Reds and to Germany, especially when the Tsar rebuffed the Rockefellers trying to take over the Baku oil fields. The Tsar's strength was a thorn in the side of Western capitalists. However, the Reds were far more obliging to, to the regime. Let me give you five reasons why the resignation letter is very dubious. I think a clear forgery. Number one, it's not unofficial stationery. The truth of the matter is Generals uh, Alexiev and Lukomsky later said that they wrote it and handed it to the Tsar to sign. That's not what happened. They, they did probably write it, but that's not how these things were done, certainly by Nicholas, who was a stickler for that kind of thing. Number two, it was typewritten. That pretty much settles it because all royal commands were done in handwriting to prevent precisely this, forgery. Number three, it's addressed only to the military chief of staff, and he was the only one to receive it. 
Number four, there was no official imperial seal, which again, closes the case. And number five is interesting to me. The signature is such a perfect copy of the signature of Nicholas found in the 1915 order to the fleet. It's a tracing. Every curve and detail is copied. It's too perfect to actually be. It's an attempt to forge it. Many of you know now an advisor to Putin, um, Natalia Polonskaya, the royalist who used to be the prosecutor in Crimea, um, has written on this subject as well. Painfully, though, the church did turn on, on Nicholas. Uh, Pitrim, Agafango, Michael, Andre, who was a great man afterwards, and even Tikon eventually came to support the provisional government uh, by accepting their right to call a synod and accept the procurator, Vien Laval, that they saw it as a liberation from Prussian tyranny. Only Makarius, Krapovitsky, and another Pitrim remain loyal. And if you've read my book on the anniversary of the of the murder, I have several quotes from the Synod after the February Revolution. And one of the most important ones reads, The will of God has been accomplished. Russia has entered on a path of a new state. May God bless our great homeland with happiness and glory on its new path. For the sake of the many sacrifices offered to win civil freedom, for the sake of the salvation of your own family, for the sake of the happiness of the homeland, Abandoned at this great historical moment, all quarrels and disagreements unite in brotherly love. For the good of Russia, trust the provisional government. All together and everyone individually, apply all of your efforts to this end, that by your labors, exploits, prayer, and obedience, you may help it in its great work of introducing new principles of state life. It's, it's, uh, it's cringy. They knew that the provisional government was Masonic. The same General uh, Alexiev that wrote the fraudulent abdication speech was also close to the Union of Progressive Democratic Clergy. Archbishop Vladimir, Archbishop Arsen, they organized sedition within the church. They forced through liturgical prayers that eliminated prayers for the Tsar. The National Oath of 1613, which brought uh, Tsar Michael to power, was a part of Russian canon law. And of course, they very quietly removed the canonical anathemas associated with these, with no synodal meeting. They simply dropped them because they said so. However you want to put it, Tsar Nicholas was surrounded by self-seekers and traitors. There was no nationalist party. There was no royalist movement to keep a close watch on what was happening. Elin gets very angry, and he writes with very harsh rhetoric that as the violence erupted, whether this be 1905, 1906, or 1917, 1918, the Black Hundreds were nowhere to be found. And here's what Elin said. Yeah, the Russian people had a czar, but they forgot how to maintain it. There was a sovereign, there were countless subjects, but the attitude of the subjects toward their sovereign was undeveloped. Over the past decades, the Russian people have weakened their monarchical legal consciousness and lost their willingness to live, serve, fight, and die, as befits a convinced monarchist. Now, he mentions the, the loyal cadre of, of senators, diplomats, members of the state council, 
He mentioned Stolypin and Samaritan. It was the knowledge of civic valor and statesmanship and, and, and political tact, those necessary but lower political virtue. In other words, the Russian people simply weren't prepared. He mentions uh, General Vladimir uh, Sukhomlinov, who was appointed Minister of War in 1909, almost appointed Commander-in-Chief of the Russian Army in 1914. He was the one who was going to uh, the Tsar saying that there's not going to be there, there's no chance of a war with Germany or Japan. He tried to abolish the fortresses near the Great Wall in the West, especially Poland. And then he began to steal hundreds of millions from the Ministry of Finance meant to meant to go to the Russian army. He either didn't spend this 250 million rubles by 1914 or spent it on himself. And this is why very early on the Russian army was not well supplied. And yet, what did anyone do about it? Was there any movement? Were there any protests against him? No. Yes, he was tried for he was tried for being a German spy. He received two years. But then the system collapsed, of course. Now some people debate his guilt, not the point. He is certainly blamed by almost everyone for the slow mobilization of the Russian the Russian army. These are the people who Nicholas had around him. He didn't have the far-sighted people that could understand or, or anticipate emerging danger. This cadre of unshakable champions, this very aristocracy that Stolip, uh, that Elin talks about in many other essays. This is what he means by a monarchist party, not, not a political faction. He says some harsh things about Rasputin. I think he's wrong there. Going so far as to say that he's responsible for spreading the fatal poison of debauchery, boasting gossip, slander, and corruption. And of course, uh, Sukumlinov was allegedly a friend of Rasputin. He says that St. Philip the Metropolitan, in confronting Ivan the Terrible, which apparently Elin did not like, is our model and guide here. And with good reason, um, he attacked Vladimir and Pushkevich. Yes, he was wealthy, but he pursued personal ends. He didn't pursue political ones. And again, when the violence occurred, when things hit the fan, they were nowhere to be found. The only thing he did in terms of organization was murder Rasputin. No nationalist group, no royalist party assisted the crown with money, weapons, and certainly not propaganda. Tsar Nicholas took over the command of the front because he didn't trust anybody else. He was so overworked. I mean, despite the fact that the army had many talented commanders, there was no one to say, I mean, it turned out to be, you know, generally successful, but he did defer to, to others. There was no one to say, maybe this isn't a good idea. Where were, the, where were the millions of the Union of the Russian people? They evaporated. And they abandoned the monarchy because they had no experience. They didn't understand civic life or really how political theory operates. That of all the errors, no one was there to say no. He says that such men never understood that the anointed one does not renounce his throne at all in the hour of national trouble. That the succession to the throne is not prepared and secured at this hour. It's necessary to defend the throne as a guarantee of the unity of Russia 
that to renounce it means to untie the whole country from its three-century oath and plunge it into anarchy. But there are still faithful people. They are ready to fulfill their duty to the end, as he said. Of course, Nicholas was well aware of all of this. The men that were reliable were too few. He was left to his fate. He's talking about the right-wing parties, and he says very angrily, he says, when the Tsar and his family were left alone in Tsarskoselo, what did this party do? Did it rush to save the throne? Did it try to force members of the provisional government and the Soviet rabble to save the emperor and take him abroad? To find those means that would be valid and would encourage the revolutionaries to honor and protect the life of the emperor and his innocent children? Where did they go? Who until then knew how to spend 200,000 rubles of annual government subsidies on just their wretched magazine? And then when the emperor was taken to Tobolsk, did they manage to replace the traitor Sroviev with at least one of their faithful people for communication? What about what happened in Ekaterinburg? What did they do to prevent it? Where were they at that time? He's angry. I think he's being a little unfair, but he does ask serious questions. There was no nationalist writing at the time. There were, it were, what there was, we probably have already spoken about on this show, nationalism was nowhere to be found. What were the royalists doing during the Bolshevik coup that October? Now, he, he, he does say, he mentions, um, um, he talks about the new martyr, the archpriest uh, Vostorgov, uh, Matusov, who Elin says that he saw in Cheka headquarters in his full uniform, demanding to be shot for his loyalty to, to Nicholas. But regardless of numbers, they didn't have a what he calls a thoughtful, organized political party defending the natural throne. And that needs to be explained. You're talking about both a well-thought-out philosophical program and the correct tactics to spread this to the population. That's what was nowhere to be found. This is why they abandoned it. They were unable, for whatever reason, to tap into the popular royalism of both the church, especially the lower clergy, and the peasantry. And everyone, especially them, suffered the consequences. He says Russian monarchists somehow were under the impression that they were called upon to praise, to congratulate, to wait for orders, to please, obey, to ask for subsidies, and assure Nicholas of their devotion. Independent political thinking, though, as well as civic responsibility, was nowhere to be found. The calling of the Russian monarchist party had nothing to do with any of it. They may have profited from the state, but they certainly didn't constitute its social and political foundation. So when the throne fell silent, it turned out that the royalists crumbled into dust and disappeared. I'm going to quote him again here uh, on, on just this issue. The royalist system collapsed in Russia because the Russian imperial throne had a historical tradition of legal consciousness in the country, but did not have an ideological or strong-willed cadre, far-sighted, united, united and capable of active speech, active work. Russian monarchists 
are obliged to realize this, admit it with bitterness and sorrow, condemn themselves, and never return to this policy of empty phrases and propaganda. Real politics is not done with words, resolutions, enthusiasm, or congratulation. Much less, it's certainly not done with empty words and untruthful assurances. That has to be put to an end. The royalist is not guilty of boasting to a sovereign and deception, but with truth and menacingly honest service. Now, strikingly, he says, the whole concept of political parties, and this is certainly no vice, but that was just starting. And it's odd, because he normally condemns political parties. He goes back and forth on what he means by a, a party. Now, what was the left's experience, though? The Bensheviks, the socialist revolutionaries, well, they had been so-called underground for a long time, but they didn't care about defending the Constituent Assembly. And here's what Elian says concerning the leftist so-called political experience. It must be admitted that the Red Organization was always conspiratorial and totalitarian, and not necessarily loyal to a party. They started with street recruitment and used selected purchased hirelings, seduced greedy people in calculating frauds. They constantly put pressure on the masses with hunger, fear, promises, handouts, corrupting their conscience and sense of justice. And in this way, they built not a party, but a totalitarian apparatus, realizing the triumph of the political police over the unthinking, deceived, and defenseless ordinary folk. It isn't as if the Reds built the party that the Royalists did not. It was a the mirror image, the opposite of what actually needed to be done. They were the oligarchs relative to the aristocracy. But monarchists didn't understand what a royalist party would entail. He's not talking about elections. There's a far broader concept of, of party here. Only the left had a voice. It was taken for granted that monarchists rejected political parties as such. But even if that's true, and I understand the mentality, I've made the argument before, but this was a new world, and they refused to adjust. Liberal assumptions were not openly challenged in public. Now, the left, they organized terror groups, they conspired, they stole money, forged passports, created safe houses, handled weapons, organized escapes. But somehow, in, in, in their sickness, they imagine that having mastered all of that, they know what politics is. To the extent that political parties have a role, and he certainly does not believe in this free debate of various forces, that's nonsensical. It's truth. If it isn't aimed at truth, it's aimed at self-interest and therefore has no right to exist. A party is a vehicle for the natural aristocracy to manifest itself. The most that the left ever did was try to interfere with someone who was actually doing real work. But it was a, a an inability. And don't tell me you don't see it in America today. But back then, the, the lack of understanding, the lack of understanding was revealed after World War I. And then once the Constituent Assembly failed, they could only return to their violent tactics. All kinds of, they tried to kill Yuritsky, uh, Volodarsky, and even Lenin. And uprisings, including the one in Tambov or Kronstadt. So we need to be careful 
And he needed to be careful. He used the word party. It's not a political party. He wrote an essay called On Political Success, which is actually found in the same collection I've already mentioned. Here's what he says about it. He says, in order to create unity, the best people, that is, precisely those who want and can serve the common organic solidarity, that is, an aristocracy, must agree with each other, close their ranks, and then proceed to unite the people in truth. If the best politicians in the country cannot or will not do this, then power will eventually be taken by the most devious and violent revolutionaries. This means that politics requires a selection of the best, those who are responsible, able to serve and talented, to keep the totalitarians at bay. Now that's what he means by a party. He's talking about an active civic organization that expresses the legal consciousness of the nation. So if the unity of Russia is based at least in part on the crown, it had to be a royalist cadre. He didn't believe in, in liberal democracy or, or party competition. He was a Hegelian. And in fact, I translated his, I, I you know, uh, partially translated his work on Hegel, which was absolutely brilliant. And he was consistent there. It isn't just to obey, it's to know why you're obeying, which is exactly what um, what Hegel did. So he's not talking about party debate. He's not talking about, you know, elections in the vulgar sense of the word. He's talking about this intellectual elite focused on political theory. That was the, the nature of this party that didn't develop and didn't come into existence despite the people, despite the money, despite the circumstances, despite the emergency despite the fact they would have been well-received, they would have had church backing, at least at the lower level. And with all that, it never happened. Even, even the whites didn't know what they were. They either supported the provisionals or they supported the royal, the royal house or some variation of the two. No concept. We've been through the white failures on this show a million times. They had no political understanding. They didn't know how to approach people, common people, loyal people, and explain to them what's happening. They never did it. As an aside, Elian also makes a point, and this is pretty brilliant, and, and, and I want to get to it here. A lot of Russian, what he calls Russian party monarchists, very naive, maybe they're good natured, sometimes they're not, they tend to confuse autocracy with absolutism. Absolutism is a bit of a myth that somehow the full power of the crown swallows up the political. Absolutism is a, a liberal term. That's what they accuse their enemies of. But the term absolute in the sense of absolute power, it's a Latin term. Absolve it. It means to loosen, to, to untie to absolve or, or to resolve in the sense of taking something apart and putting it back together. That's really what it is. No, autocracy is the opposite of absolutism. And absolutism largely is just on paper anyway. Autocracy refers to the legal foundation of authority. Now, I've said many times that absolutism, if it has any role at all, 
means that he has absolute responsibility, and that that might be true. But that's not how it's normally used. Elin says that the autocratic monarch, not this absolute myth, is the highest legal body of the state, and its position is established by law, whether it be civil or canon. Power of the crown is not granted from foreigners or from internal forces like the army or the nobility or whatever. It belongs to him, as I've said before, by force of law. He says this must be understood once and for all. Autocracy rejects, condemns, and excludes absolutism. And absolutism rejects the fundamental rights of the sovereign because it does not recognize him as a legitimate monarch. It denies his high title as a supreme subject of law. His title is reduced to that of a tyrant. It corrupts and destroys the legal foundation of the crown. Absolutism, in other words, is incompatible with autocracy. And he uses the examples of Tiberius, Caligula, Nero. They weren't autocrats in his mind. These men largely received their power from the army. They ascended to their office without recognizing any legal limitations. Absolutism automatically made them a non-legal functionary. They ruled through fear and villainy, and then they covered it up with their imaginary divinity. Now, then he says something very startling. That they're the same as Louis XI, Louis XIV, and Ivan the Terrible. Which really shook me. I, I didn't know he said that. I don't know what he was thinking. But he's in a very emotional state here. You really can't blame him. Regardless of that. The concept of an absolute monarch that he can do anything. All that means he's going to pursue whatever his lust might desire. The true autocratic sovereign doesn't have that kind of freedom. He's bound by law and tradition. The tyrant is not. Now, Aristotle's distinction is that a legitimate ruler rules from the point of view of the common good, where the illegitimate ruler, the tyrant, rules from the point of view of his own good. But this is really two sides of the same coin. It's what degrades and disgraces the title of monarch, in fact. The real autocrat knows the limits of his power and doesn't encroach on the rights that are assigned to others. He knows that by not observing the law, it undermines his own authority. And he uses the example of Alexander I. And this is the heart of the matter. This is what a legitimate Russian autocrat will do, or should do. It is clear that a legitimate monarch will value every free and responsible word, every honest objection, every political initiative of the subject. Peter the Great, I can't believe he's... Peter the Great used to say, I'm glad to hear useful things from the subject. It's fun to listen when subjects openly tell their sovereign the truth. This is what we need to learn from the British. I don't know what planet he's on, but he allegedly said this after visiting the House of Lords Incognito. But the tyrant will not tolerate in his subjects either self-reflection, independent opinion, or rational speech. I understand what he's saying, but, but I just don't take it seriously. I doubt Peter the Great ever said that. He doesn't, he doesn't cite a source. Peter the Great was too arbitrary and too unstable for anything, anything like that. And what the hell is he talking about? The British? This is what we have to learn from the British? This stuff happened in Russia all the time. Regardless of that, it, it was it was shocking to hear some of this, but but you know it doesn't get to the heart of the matter though. So 
the broader point and the profound point is that an absolute ruler is one who demands praise and flattery. Uncondi- nothing could be unconditional except to God. No office can, can require unconditional obedience. By definition, that can't uh, be extended to anyone but God. That a true tyrant doesn't tolerate any kind of independent opinion or creative initiative. Elin says that the pre-revolutionary monarchist organizations focus instead on glorification. He said that these guys neither had an independent judgment about what was happening, nor an organizational contract, nor an action plan, nor appropriate decisions and speeches to motivate others. And the sovereign, and Nicholas, he was careless when he relied on the assurances of these men. And this is partially why he found himself isolated and eventually handed over. He goes so far as to say that it wasn't necessarily a conscious betrayal, but it was a pathological passivity. You had a czar, you lived under a czar, but you didn't understand what royalism was. It was a betrayal that comes from meaninglessness, the lack of will, and powerlessness. The term I've used for that many times is abulia. Yes, there's some truth in this. There is some falsehood, kind of like how we all are. I understand the point. The very fact that he understands the coups in 1730s, 1740s, I mentioned, the Masonic uh, Savine, um, Byron's cult, the, the worst tyranny Russia has ever experienced prior to the 20s. Came from modernists, came from Masons who believed in this abstract freedom just only for themselves. They dominated the state. And one of the reasons I think that the collapse of the state consciousness goes back much further than what, than what Yulin says, it comes precisely from this era. Super high taxes, endless wars, high casualties. I mean, they come directly from Peter's reign. They all had some connection with him, you know, placing rulers on the throne so they could rule behind them. This went very far to destroy the consciousness of the common Russian population. It was always present. As Ivan IV or Ivan the Terrible was one of the favorites of the Russian peasantry. And when you combine that with the importation of Voltaire and Robespierre, you have a you have a completely different set of circumstances, but this comes directly from Peter, as does Catherine the Great. You know, um, several decades later, and during the reign of the two Annas, and of course the so-called Catherine the First, which is a, a mockery, that's when Lord Byron and, and, and his and his friends simply ruled the country um, as as it was a kleptocracy for their own, but these people weren't Russian, they hated orthodoxy. They destroyed so many churches. That's really where the schism came from. And of course, the old believers were painfully aware of it. This is why at that point they got so, the priestless got so extreme. And I'm the only one to really get into this in great, in great detail. What this oligarchy was, where throughout the 18th century, there was no legitimate monarch with the exception of um, 
and the Empress Elizabeth, who Elin also doesn't like, but but he was, but um, uh, she was probably the only legitimate one. Um, and this is this, and you know, the old belief. I mean, he doesn't deal with that. Elin doesn't believe in in that as the the foundational schism that there's a connection between Alexis and, of course, uh, Peter the Great, and what came in between. And the 18th century being the darkest up until the 20th century, and that the 19th century was not able to entirely uh, compensate for. Yes, his his argument is overstated. He gets very emotional, very angry. We're also, I mean, I certainly am quite capable of that. My first book was written in a in an entire state of state of anger, um, which I've not done since. You know, talk about cringy. Um, his case is overstated. He goes too far. Um, and his admiration of Peter tends to undercut his arguments. And so much of what he condemns comes directly from him. But he was well aware of what happened in the middle of the 18th century in, in the um, in the 1740s. It is a curious question. Is this the reason? The main reason why the whites lost the war, why royalism wasn't able to defend the crown, just like there was no opposition. I mean, there was, you got peasant uprisings, you got all of this after the Civil War, but the whites never took advantage of that. They were never unified, they were never brought under one roof. I don't think they had that capacity. In 2024, there is no opposition. To the regime. There's no opposition to the leftism that's imposed on us. That's now the official ideology enforceable in court and through law. January 6th showed us what the regime will do to any resistance. So now the regime does as it pleases. In my opinion, these are very clear parallels. Thank you, as always, my friends. Thank you for listening. And I will talk to you next time. Bye bye. Thank <laughs> you.